Thanks, Michael. Um, if you've got your Bibles open, it'd be great just to just to leave them that way. We're pretty much going to work through it top to bottom in, in the two different sections today, so uh, it'll probably be handy to have them open. Uh, before we start, should we just uh, bear our heads in prayer? Loving Father, we thank you that again today we can come together as a church family to spend time in your Word. We thank you for your Holy Scriptures, that they are a lamp to our feet and that they are a light to our path. And I pray that I would be faithful to your Word and that through your Spirit you would open all of our hearts to be challenged and to be encouraged. Amen. Right, quick show of hands. Has anyone seen this movie? What do we got? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yep. This movie is getting a little bit old now, so I know some people won't have seen it. So the film is called The Shawshank Redemption. It uh, came out in 1995, Oscar-nominated movie, and it missed out to Forrest Gump. Uh, so if you haven't heard of this, this movie was a bit of a dark horse, uh, a box office disappointment. It made $65 million. Forrest Gump, you probably have heard of, made $650 million. But today, here's the difference. Today, this movie is the number one rated film on the International Movie Database. So if you like movies like me and you've got the app on your phone, this is the number one rated film by all the people that use the app, including the critics. So people love this movie, right? Now, quick caveat, if you haven't seen it, uh, don't rush home for family movie night on it. It's a, um, it's a good movie, but it's, it's set in a prison and it's a little bit raw. So I'll leave you to, to make a call about what's the appropriate time to watch it. But one of the big themes of this movie uh, is hope and fear. And so the two main characters, the, the two guys up on the screen, they're set up in the movie to show the contrast. And so you've got Andy, he's the guy on the left, and he's solid for the future, right? So he's looking forward to what the future's got to bring. He's got a plan, and he's got a blueprint for his life. But Red, the guy on the, uh, the right-hand side, he's fearful, and he's got two big fears. So firstly, he's fearful what to do if he ever gets out of prison. So he's spent his whole life in prison. His whole adult life has been spent inside, inside the walls of a prison, and he doesn't know what he's going to do when he gets out. He knows that when he gets out, there's going to be no one to help him, no one to encourage him, no one to show him the rules of racing in life, and so he's fearful that he's not going to meet up to expectations. And secondly, he's actually fearful of the future in general. He doesn't even know if he's ever going to be released. And so there's this fear of missing out. He, uh, his view is, if I don't have any hope, if there's nothing over here for me to wish on, then there's nothing that they can rip away from me. And so Andy's view is hope is a good thing. And then Red, if you've seen the movie, there's a bit of a catch line, is hope is a dangerous thing. And so in light of these two fears, and in light of uh, Red's two fears, we're going to have a look at chapter 4 of uh, the book of Thessalonians today. And uh, they're, they're two reasonably discrete sections that we heard, we heard read out, but each of those we're going to reference back to Red's fears. And to a certain degree, the Thessalonian situation, it's actually not too different from the concept of, of people moving from one life to another, from moving inside prison to, to outside into a new life. They'd gone through a radical change just like this. They'd grown up in the absolute depths of the heathen world in Greece. In the distance from their home in Thessalonica, they could look and they could see Mount Olympus, the home of the Greek gods. And the sex-fueled cult of Aphrodite was absolutely rife in their community. They were a hopelessly lost people. But as we've learned over the last uh, three to four weeks, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they came to Thessalonica and they preached the good news. And so, so a lot of these people were converted and a new church started. And so a new life for them had began. They'd gone from, from sort of this old life to a new life. 
But this is where the comparison with Red finishes, because unlike Red, he was fearful of expectations. He had no guidance, he had no help, he didn't know what to do in the new life. Well, Paul had sat down and he'd taught the Thessalonians in person what the Christian life should look like. And so in the first verse of today's passage, he says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And so in this letter today, he's now left, he's not in Thessalonica, but he's writing to them and he's basically reinforcing and encouraging them with what he'd taught before. And so what does Paul's encouragement and reinforcement of the Christian life look like? I mean, for most of us here today, we've probably had a change too. We've gone from our old life to our new life in Christ. And so I guess the question is, how do I walk, uh, well, how do I live in my walk? How do we live in our walk now that we've been through that change? And so Paul starts off and he implies that we're to be moving forward. We're not to be stationary. And so in the first verse, Paul actually affirms, he says, look, you are living in ways that please God. But then he says, and we'll just quote now, now we ask you and we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus, do this more and more. See, the Christian life isn't a brand. It's not just uh, an identity that we take on and we sit and forget and we just, uh, we just, we just leave, live it that way. Instead, it's actually a way of life. And uh, some of you may remember uh, the, the early Christian church, the name for it, what a lot of people called it was the way. In Acts, we learned that they were called the way. And so the Scriptures calls us to continue daily. It's a way of life. And we're to live life, but we're to move forward, further and further forward to, what, to the way that God has called us to live. And so what does this new life look like? What is it that we're moving towards? Well, unlike red, we're lucky. We don't have to have this fear of the unknown. And so verse 3 to 8 today, it calls us to be holy. It says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. This means to be set apart, to be a holy people. It's really an individual issue, right? It's about us. It says that as individuals, we're called to learn to control our own bodies. And Paul specifically calls out the issue here of sexual immorality with the Thessalonians, because this was obviously a huge challenge for a people that are growing up in the depths of the heathen world. But we also know from other areas of scriptures, uh, Galatians is a good place to look if you want, uh, that holiness and purity, they extend past these things. And so in Galatians, you know, we hear things that might for us be jealousy or hatred, anger, selfish ambition. And so I wonder if Paul was writing to us today, if he was writing a similar letter to reinforce and encourage things to us, what aspects of, of purity might he call out for us? So at a broader level in this passage, Paul's talking about a progression. He's talking about learning more and more to control ourselves, to live holy lives. And why? Well, verse 7 shows us, it says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Individually, we're not to be stationary, but we're to push forward, living more and more as a people that are set apart to glorify God. And there's this wonderful truth here in verse 1. If, uh, if you're like me and you're stumbling your, uh, your way along your Christian life, you're tripping up along the way, well, God is still pleased with you. Whilst we're still sinners, whilst we know that we've fallen far from the glory of God, through His sanctifying work, God is pleased with us. Just like Paul says here that He's pleased with the Thessalonians. How good is that? That's, that's the one gold star that, uh, that you don't throw away. It's the one gold star that's actually meaningful in our life. 
And then he steps out a layer, right? So we were looking at the individual. How do I walk in, in, in uh, how do I live in my walk? And, and then he steps out almost to a community level. How do we live with others? How do we live with those people that we're on the journey with? And so in verse 9, he says, we're to love one another. And again, he encourages the Thessalonians because he says, you're already doing this, not only in your own church, but right through Macedonia. But he says that they need to do so more and more. He urges them, do so more and more. Don't be stationary. Move forward. Continue in the race. And there's this marvelous passage here in verse 9. Paul strangely writes, he says, look, I don't really need to write to you to give you any more detail about loving one another because you yourselves have already been taught by God. What does he mean here? It's a bit strange, isn't it? Paul had clearly gone to Thessalonica. He'd been sitting with these people. He'd been specifically teaching them about how to live the Christian life. But on this one particular issue, it's like he pulls away and he says, look, you don't need any specific guidance from me because you've already been taught by God. What does that mean? How were they taught this by God? Well, Romans 5 helps us out. Romans 5 says that when we're saved, when we're justified by Christ, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there's this amazing truth here that as Christians, God's love has been shown to us. It's been poured out into, his, into our hearts by His Spirit. But, as Paul says here, we're not just to rest on our laurels content in that fact, but rather we're called to love one another more and more. Not to be stationary, but to be moving forward. And now Paul takes a step out again, right? So it's almost layer on layer. We were looking at the individual, talking about purity, then it sort of moved to the the community. And now he moves out again and he starts to explain the nature of the Christian life within broader society. And so the question is, how do Christians interact? How are we to interact and how are we to behave in broader society? Are the expectations of us here today in Oran Park the same as what they would have been for the Greek slaves in Thessalonica? Or are we here in Oran Park to act differently to, say, other Christians that live in different parts of the world with, with, with a lot less freedom or a lot less, you know, different political systems than we have? Later on today, we're going to have a look at Christ's return. So we know that Christ is coming again. So what should we do? Should we really start to get loud, really start to ramp things up? I mean, if ever there was a, a time in history or a people in history that had the ability to, uh, to really do something, it would be people like us here today in Australia. We've got amazing freedoms. But verse 11 says no. It says quite the opposite. It says the Scriptures teach us to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life, minding our own business. Not a revolutionary life. We're not trying to change the world like an upstart political party. We're not trying to uh, get loud in the streets. We're not trying to create social tension with you know, provocative Twitter comments. It's the mark of our times, isn't it? Let's get loud and let's get loud from behind a keyboard. But Paul teaches us that rather than creating tension, rather than being loud and provocative, we're to live quiet lives. And the term here, it really means tranquil. So it's it's not silence, it's not keeping your thoughts to yourself, it's not uh, talking about things, it's not about not, uh, you know, spreading the news about Jesus. But it's about living a tranquil, peaceful life. So it's the way that we go about things. The Christian life is not a revolutionary life. It's an internal revolution. The gospel is like massively revolutionary. It's a revolution of our hearts and it's a revolution of our minds. But we're never called to be externally revolutionary. Instead, we're called to live quiet, tranquil lives. 
and we're to work with our hands. All right, this quiet, peaceful life, it doesn't mean that we extract ourselves from society and we go and live in a bubble. We're not, we're not monks, we're not hermits, we don't remove ourselves from society, we're called to work in it. And whether it's paid employment, whether it's looking after our families, whether it's volunteering in society, fundamentally, we are to be contributing. We're to be in there, living in the world and earning people's mutual respect and not being dependent on anyone. And, uh, and the Scriptures is great about this. Paul is the perfect example. So he, he's with his people, he's in Thessalonica, he's teaching them day by day, and then at night, he's toiling away, making tents, so he can earn his living, and he can earn people's respect, and that uh, he can not have to rely on anyone. Now, let's be clear, Paul doesn't, uh, doesn't say to us, don't be ambitious about our lives. He doesn't say, look, just settle for simplicity, sit back, let society do its own thing, and we be quiet. We desperately need Christians across all levels of society. We need Christians that are ambitious. We need people that are ambitious and are adventurous. We need Christian teachers. We need Christian police chiefs. We need Christian stay-at-home parents. And we need Christian politicians. We need Christian truck drivers. And we need Christian missionaries. We need Christian CEOs. We need the Scott Morrisons of the world. And we need the Marnus Labuschagnes of the world. So if you are driven, if you are ambitious, then that's great. Be ambitious for life. But this passage calls us to be ambitious for the way that we live it. Quietly, peacefully, and honorably. There's that great line from Micah that some of us uh, know, walking humbly with our God. And so Red and Shawshank, he had these two fears about how to live in the new world. He had no blueprint. But friends, the Lord has given that to us and we don't have any need to be anxious or to be fearful about getting it wrong. We're to get out there and we're to live our life. If you've seen the movies, there's that catchphrase, get busy living. And so whether we're Greek slaves or whether we're here in Oran Park in a pretty wonderful place in the world, we're called to live with the revolutionary gospel in our heart, but quietly and honorably earning the respect of others by the way that we live. And what does all this result in? I mean, when we see people who live a self-controlled life, who strive to walk an honourable path, that's attractive, isn't it? They're the types of people that I want to look up to, they're the type of people I want to listen to, they're the type of people that I want to hang around with. And when we see people who are loving, who are looking out for other people, they're selfless with their time, they're selfless with their resources, it's attractive, isn't it? Like We've seen that so plainly in the last three weeks with the way heaps of people have responded to, uh, to fire victims. There's been something beautiful and attractive and uplifting and inspiring about when people love one another like this. And then when we see people that are living like this and they're doing it all off their own steam, not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of other people and for the glory of God, it's got to be attractive, isn't it? It can't fail but earn other people's respect. And so it's apparent to me that this is God's natural form of evangelism for our lives. For the vast majority of us who aren't like the Apostle Paul, that have a pretty specific calling and a pretty specific task, we're just living here in the world, and this forms part of God's blueprint for our lives. Uh, and for the regulars here, I don't know if your mind's been wandering a little bit to, uh, to the mission that we have, but uh, being faithful and being enduring, pushing forward, not being stationary, being compassionate for our brothers and sisters, loving each other more and more, and being adventurous and living new life, getting involved, being ambitious, 
and being ambitious for the way that we live life. And ultimately, from all of this, God willing, winning the respect of others, and then using this to give the message of new life. We're going to transition now into the, um, to the second section, and this section focuses on the, uh, the second coming of the Lord. And the contrast between the Thessalonians and Red in the movie is significant again. So Red had almost no hope. He didn't want to hope. He had no vision of the future. He had no view on the horizon. And he was fundamentally living in the dark and he was uninformed. But the Thessalonians, they're the complete opposite, right? They are informed. And they have this fervent belief that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back soon. And so they've been watching in anticipation. They've been waiting for his return. And they'd been taught these things by Paul. They hadn't, they hadn't made this stuff up. So later on, if you want to, you can jump forward into Second uh, Thessalonians. And I'll just paraphrase a bit. But Paul says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? So they'd learnt this stuff, right? But then something's happened. So Paul, Paul's now left. The church have continued looking for the coming of the Lord but then some of the people in their church and their congregation have died. And so they've got this question, they're like, well, hang on, we were waiting for the coming, these people have died, what's going to happen with them? Are they, uh, they going to miss the boat totally? Are they going to miss out on this, this great coming of the Lord? Are they going to be a second-class Christian citizen? And so this whole section is about Paul furthering their information, further cementing the hope that they had. And it's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't, he doesn't correct them at all. Paul doesn't correct them. He doesn't try to dissipate their focus at all. He doesn't tell them, look, just chill out a little bit. Just focus on getting through today, tomorrow, and next week. Live in the moment. It's not what he says. Today's, um, today's buzz is mindfulness. Um, and I absolutely get aspects of this movement. And, uh, and if ever there's somebody that needs to probably practice a little bit more mindfulness and put my phone down and uh, actually live in the moment and see what's happening in the world, then I'm one of those people. But our focus isn't always to be on the here and now. We've got a horizon that God gifted us with. And in His great mercy and wisdom, He's revealed His plans to us. He didn't have to, but He has. So we don't have to walk through life anxious and nervous about what is going to become of the world. It's clear. Jesus is coming for His people and if you want to look at Paul's final words in the letter today, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Brothers and sisters, don't be uninformed. That's how he begins the second section. And there's a lot in here, but um, I just want to quickly look at four things to help keep us informed and hopefully to cement the hope that we should be sharing with those Thessalonians. So let's not be uninformed. As believers, we will not truly die. So Paul starts by saying, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those that sleep in death. And notice he specifically uses the term sleep. He uses the term sleep because it's not a real death for the Christian. True death, that's death for people who are not found in Christ, is separation from God. But this is something that we as believers are told will never happen. And in fact, it's interesting, Jesus himself uses this same terminology. So uh, if you remember the, the story of the raising of Lazarus in John 11, Jesus is uh, with his disciples and he says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to go and wake him up. And the disciples don't quite understand. They sort of say, well, hang on, if he's fallen asleep, is, is it a big deal? He, he'll, he'll be all right, he'll come good, he'll, he'll wake up. 
And then Jesus has to be a bit more explicit because they don't understand. So he says, Lazarus is dead. And so Paul uses this same hope-filled terminology that Jesus does when talking about some of their community which had died. So whilst they'd obviously died physically, and from our earthly perspective, they're essentially asleep, right? They can't, they can't interact with us in our waking lives, they can't, they can't do things with us, but they are by no means dead. And so I guess the obvious question that comes to mind is, well, what state are these people in? And so one thing is perfectly clear from Scripture, that we as believers will never be separated from God. Jesus tells us that He will never leave us as orphans. And what does He say to the thief that's dying on the cross with Him? He says, assuredly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, let's not be uninformed. All of those trusting in Jesus will not die. Let's not be uninformed. It doesn't all finish with our death. And I think this is sometimes where we, uh, we like to focus on where we finish the Christian story, right? It finishes at our own death. Um, and I wonder if, because like me, we're a reasonably self-centric lot. Uh, I know I am. But when we look back at 2,000 years of history, it's been 2,000 years and, and, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And so the natural picture that we can form is the life pattern is that we go along through our life, uh, we die and we go to be with Christ. And, and, that, and that's there. But uh, that's not the only thing. That's not the end of God's plan. And so uh, if, you, if you ever look at the little icons, the logos on the bottom of our readings, the very last icon that kind of represents the end of the story, it doesn't finish with us. There's a new heavens and a new earth on that icon. And so with that comes the biblical truth that all of us will inhabit this new world with new physical bodies. And so just as Christ rose from the dead in physical form, this passage reaffirms what other passages in the Scriptures teach us, that we are all going to rise uh, into new bodies. And 1 Corinthians, uh, if you want to look later on, it's got this great passage and it, it teaches us that our new bodies, our new imperishable bodies will be splendorous. And so it compares our current bodies to a simple seed, right? I mean, our current bodies are still pretty cool, but it compares them to a simple seed and the complexity and the beauty of what we will, uh, what we will inherit will be like the complexity and the beauty of the flower or the plant that comes from that seed. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that wonderfully encouraging. I like life. I like my body. I like getting out, I like using it. I like living in the world, tangible things. That, that's, that's what I enjoy. And so, if I've got two options, some sort of future ethereal existence that I can't really comprehend, or a new earth with a new body of splendor, then sell that to me. That's the one that I'm buying. That's the one that I want. And that's what God has got planned for us. Let's not be uninformed. No believers will miss out. So Paul tells them that at the coming of the Lord, those who have fallen asleep, those in the grave, will in no way be disadvantaged. So there's no second-class citizens. In fact, verse 16 says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then after this, we who are still left alive will be caught up. Not caught up in our earthly bodies, but as 1 Corinthians is clear, I'll just paraphrase it a bit, but it says, we will all be changed. In the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised first, imperishable, and we, so those of us left, will be changed. And how concrete is the hope, right? Who is it that we're relying on to do these things? Not a messenger, not a prophet, not an angel, but it's the resurrection himself, the Lord Jesus, that comes for us. 
There is only one man who has the power to conquer death and only one man who has the power to give life to it. Jesus says about himself, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I've placed before you an open door that no man can shut. No believers miss out. And finally, let's not be uninformed and let's not grieve like the rest of mankind. And make no mistake about it, it doesn't say don't grieve. Of course we're going to grieve. Paul doesn't say don't grieve. He says that we're not to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Kind of sounds a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? Don't, don't grieve like those people over there, they've got no hope. But seriously, honestly, what more does our world actually have to offer us? You know, if we sit down with our friends today at the cafe and we're, and we're talking about death and we imply that when we die, we, we get to go and play golf up in the stars with our friends or we get to ride our Harley on the, on the, the motorway of life in, in heaven. You know, nobody has those conversations. Nobody believes that stuff. It's conversations that do not happen. Yet that's the exact same terminology and sentiment and thoughts that we politely nod and we smile at at funerals because that's all that the world has to offer us. It's not a hope at all, it's weak, it's totally unfounded and ultimately it leaves us in the dark and fearful, much like Red in Shawshank. But let's not be uninformed, friends, we are not to grieve like the rest of mankind because we have a hope and it's a concrete hope, it's not an ambitious hope, it's not a let's wish on a star. God has shown us His plan, He's given us the blueprint and he's sending to us the one person that will never fail. So let's be encouraged with these words. Now there's a, there's a heap of stuff in today's passage and um, I'm not going to do it justice with some great takeaways. Hopefully it's triggered some, some things that, that you found helpful. Um, but look, we're starting into a new year, 2020. It's a time where we sort of start to think about what we might focus on during the year. So here's a couple of things that I found encouraging in the passage. Living a sanctified and holy life. If ever there's a great thing to pray about, this is a great thing. If you struggle for things to pray for, this is a great thing to pray for. We can be thankful that God has poured out His love into our hearts. We can be encouraged by the fact that He is pleased with us. And then with this in mind, we can call out to Him confidently. We can ask Him to help us, help us move further forward, pull us out of those stationary ruts in the road and live a life worthy of our calling. Living a busy and a loving life pretty sure that everybody in here is as busy as everybody else that I know at Oran Park. Uh, We are busy people, but if this has triggered you around wanting to get involved uh, and and look at ways of loving more and more, then this church has got some great stuff to offer in that space. And uh, partnership's the natural process for it. Uh, I know that there's another round coming up in February, so it might be something that you want to think about. And then finally, let's live a strengthened life fixed on the real horizon. And this is just an encouragement from me. I mean, I personally find prophecy so fulfilling. I find it encouraging. And when I can look back and I can see the things that God has done for us and fulfilled, it's like a firm rudder for me when the seas rise up. And the Thessalonians here, they took it seriously, didn't they? Paul didn't try to to nullify it at all. They had their eyes set on a real horizon. Do we have our eyes set on that horizon? Or like myself, are uh, are we often far more self-focused and self-centered and and, and living in the moment? And so my challenge is, if you're inclined, if you want to strengthen the rudder, spend some time searching the Scriptures, see what God has promised in the past, see what He's accomplished, what's His track record like, and then what is it that we're to be looking forward to? 
in 2020, maybe we should cast our eyes to the real horizon and then let's encourage ourselves with these things. If you've seen the movie, uh, Red's fears, they're not unfounded. And, uh, and perhaps that's why people love it, right? They can resonate with the, with, the, with, uh, with the characters and it makes for really good drama. But friends, today's passage is showing us that in no way should we struggle like Red did. We've got a God who in His great wisdom and grace has revealed to us how to live. He doesn't leave us to grope in the dark trying to desperately find His will. We have a blueprint and it gives us assurance and He's called us to live life. Get out there and live life and live a holy loving and honourable life because this pleases Him and it, and it already is pleasing Him. And not only this, but as we live day by day and we struggle our way along, He's set before us this concrete hope to set our eyes on, that one day He will come for us and the one coming is the one person that can never fail and that will be given new bodies, bodies of splendour and then we will be with the Lord forever. The series the last four weeks has been called Eternal Encouragement. I challenge you to find anything else that the world offers up that can beat this. Let's uh, bow our heads in prayer. Loving Father, we thank you that through your loving kindness you've revealed your plans to us and you've set before us a concrete hope. Uh, we pray that you will be with us all, that you will help us to live holy, honourable lives worthy of your calling and that through this, the name of Jesus may shine. Amen. Hmm? Oh, yeah. The bonus bit that Ben uh, was really looking forward to uh, about our evening service. Uh, so, uh, Ben, we do a Q&A, mm. and um, we would love to ask you gracious, kind, encouraging questions. Isn't that right, church? Uh, so has anyone got any questions? Uh, it's a fairly interesting area that uh, Ben's been uh, bringing to us from God's Word tonight. Are there questions that arise that uh, you would like to ask? If you can put your hand up, I'll come and bring you a mic. I know that there will be questions, so it really just takes somebody to ask the first one. Someone got one to get us started? An opening bid, perhaps? Yeah, sure. Sorry, mate. Oh, my voice carries. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, all believers are raised in their bodies, and you referred to 1 Corinthians. Yep. We should all go and read our uh, Bibles, but after the cheat sheet, well, first, was that the... Yeah. Oh, sorry, you want the passage? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Cool. Good, Good sermon. Question. Good question. Thanks, Sean. Uh, it's a cracking read, 1 Corinthians 15. It, it starts with, uh, what, what sort of bodies will they be raised with? And, uh, and it says, what, what a silly question to ask. <laughs> but it does, it does actually spend a lot of time filling it out, so have a read. It's a, it's a great passage. Uh, someone else, another question? Thanks for your message again, Ben. Um, just a quick question. So um, in uh, verse 11, it was talking about to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we've told you. Um, when, when is it appropriate to, to speak out around injustices and, and things like that? Then what's the, um, the correlation? You know, we, we, we've sort of seen the um, you know the, the gay marriage bill. We see the you know the work that um, International Justice Mission does, and things like that. Yep. What, what, what's the um, 
the threshold or when should we start talking out about things and, and still listen to what God is talking about here? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, my view on it is uh, we should always be doing those things because other parts of Scripture tell us that, we, you know, and I guess in terms of loving one another, some of those things that you're talking about, uh, it's pretty hard to do that without speaking out in, in that case. And I think uh, history has shown that Christians have done incredible things in terms of speaking about, about injustice and, and making change uh, in that space. I think this passage is how do you do that? So it's the way that you go about it. So I don't know, I had a pretty kind of provocative photo of a person there hooded up with some tear gas. I mean, that's one way that you can raise issues and there's other ways that you can raise issues. So, I mean, I think this uh, scripture's uh, talking about the way that we do it. And um, so trying to do it to the best of our ability, uh, quietly or at least in a pleasant manner, uh, you know, a mature manner uh, and honourably. Someone else? Tim. Uh, you mentioned the faith on the cross. Mm. Uh, so the implication with the faith is that it's today. He'll be in paradise. Yep. Uh, whereas Thessalonians appears to apply that it will be later, that the dead will raised. How do you reconcile those two? Sorry, sort of, the, the dead will be raised? Yeah, the dead will be raised later on. Yep. How do you reconcile those two kind of expressions of the afterlife? Yeah, so I mean, I think the Thessalonians passage is implying that... Uh, the, the dead raising will be at a, at a future time, right? So it clearly hasn't happened. I think those people are still on the ground now. Uh, but in terms of our separation from God or where we are, I think there is no separation gap. So to answer you, well, to, not to answer your question, but to, get, to give a bit more detail, I think there's multiple views on what that might look like. So I guess really simply, without getting too complex here, one, one concept could be, uh, that we live in a space-time continuum that we're used to, right? So we, we tick along the clock. And so the people uh, that have died in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago, they're still in the grave now. Um, the question is, uh, in God's, God's world, where a, a thousand days is, is like a, a thousand years is like a day and a thousand days is like a year, uh, is that time gap really real for those people? And so is the time when Christ comes for us uh, to raise us from the dead. For those people that have died, perhaps that time frame feels to them incredibly short. And so for them, there is actually no time gap. Uh, other people take a completely different view of that, and, and that view would be that those people are in a spiritual heaven at the moment, and the time period goes on, which at this point has been 2,020-odd years, uh, and then at a later time, their body is physically raised. So... Uh, there's definitely multiple views. I, I think the most important thing out of it, which is probably what I tried to touch on, is regardless of your view, uh, it's made clear that we'll never be separated from God. There is no huge time distance where we are not with God. At every point, Scripture is clear uh, that we are with God and He doesn't leave us alone. It's very good. It's good. Uh, someone else follow-up question? Thanks, Tim. 